Well, hello, Living Hope, and it's so good to see all of you here on Super Bowl Sunday. And uh, all you um, Bengal fans, I believe, no, not really. You know, um, America is an interesting country in that uh, the Sunday in which they play a football game, we mark it out as a special Sunday, but uh, I want to welcome you to worship. Hey, you know, we've been going through the book of Hebrews, and it's been a great study if you've been with us. As a reminder, the book of Hebrews was written to generally Christians uh, who are in danger of, uh, of neglecting their faith and of drifting from their faith. In fact, chapter 2, 1 talks about uh, the fact that we ought to not drift. Chapter 2, verse 13, about not neglecting our salvation. Chapter 10, about not neglecting our gathering together. Chapter 13, about not um, neglecting hospitality. Chapter 13, about not neglecting doing good. Our passage for today is Hebrews chapter 12. If you have not done so yet, would you open up your paper Bibles or fire up your favorite Bible app? And if you haven't caught on, we normally preach from the ESV version of the Bible. So fire up Hebrews chapter 12, and we'll be in verses 1 through 17. There's a lot in chapter 12, but I'm going to focus our attention on the first 17 verses. And if you found your place in the Bible, would you rise with me at the reading of God's Word? Would you stand at the reading of God's Word, and either you can follow from your handheld device or Bible or uh, uh, on the screen if we have it there. As I read, I want you to look for two metaphors, pictures, images of how God wants us to see our Christian life, okay? Let me start reading. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin um, which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted in your struggle against sin. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when he when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best for them, best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Verse 12, 
Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and cause uh, trouble, and by it many have become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Lord Jesus, we come as a, a community uh, desperately wanting to learn of you. May you speak to us. May we prepare our minds and our hearts uh, to receive that which you have in store for us. Let us do it with humility and, and bowed knees. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. You know, one of the things I appreciate, and Pastor Corey Ishida talked about it after um, both services last Sunday. He said, you know, at your church, uh, all of you um, are so receptive to the preaching of the Word of God, and I, I thank you for that. It's uh, not all churches are able to preach expositorily, where we take passages of Scripture from a book and just uh, go on and have the people receive it. But we're fortunate that um, the pastors here are fortunate that we have a church that does, so we're grateful for that. Did you catch the two metaphors? that the author introduced to us in this particular section. Um, the first metaphor is that of a runner in a race, and the second metaphor is that of a son or a daughter in his relationship or her relationship to the father. Those two metaphors, right? In the midst of a difficult Christian life, uh, in the midst of times when we are drifting, when we are neglecting, when we are tempted to quit, the author of Hebrews, and um, as he almost comes to a crescendo, as he uh, rounds out the whole book, he says, I want you to remember these two imageries of who you are. You are an endurance runner, and you are a child of the Father. This is relevant to you. So let's first of all, uh, in chapters uh, 12, verses 1 through 11, talk about the instructions to the endurance Runner, He begins in verse 1, and he says, Let us, he himself included, uh, with endurance the race that is set before us. So the imagery is that of a runner. He's not talking about a sprinter that has immense giftedness, but a distance runner. And he's imploring them to run with endurance, and in fact, the word endure uh, comes up three times in this particular chapter, and in verses 12 and 13, he adds to that idea of not quitting, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight path for your feet. I was, um, I used to run high, uh, high school cross country and track, and I remember one of our, um, my coach used to say, if you're in the middle of a race and you want to quit, you're so tired, you can't go on, don't focus on the f finish line, don't focus on other runners, but focus on your knees. He says, just make sure you're, just lift up your knees, just lift up your knees and then it, the momentum will carry you forward. And so the, the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't quit. Endure. 
Strengthen your hands, strengthen your knees. And the, and the motivation that he gives, he gives three motivation. This is what you need to look at, gaze upon it. Don't forget these things. This will help you. First, he says, look to the lives of the faithful. Look to the lives of the faithful. He begins in verse 1, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside, etc. Um, uh, and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So therefore, uh, refers back to chapter 11. So last Sunday's sermon talked about uh, the faith of the spiritual heroes. Look to those who have gone before us. Those who have walked and endured before us. Those who have finished the race right before us. It's an encouragement to not necessarily look at the ideal perfection because that could discourage us, but look to just someone. Just someone who's gone before us, but they were faithful to the end. And if you think about it, Every single person mentioned in chapter 11 in that hall of faith has now passed on from this life. And he's saying, look to some of them. They weren't perfect. They weren't always gifted. They weren't even always obedient. But they finished. You know, the New Testament writers oftentimes use the analogies of, of a battle, of a conflict, of a race, uh, of a wrestling match to talk about the Christian life, and in fact, uh, it's so appropriate because if you recall, and this is, we're in the middle of the Winter Olympics, but the, the marathon began in Greece during about this time, and so the people would be familiar with the long-distance race. And he, the author likens the Christian life to an endurance race. And in endurance race, as the other, as other authors um, in the New Testament talks about the race, um, the goal isn't so much to finish faster than other people, isn't to necessarily exercise your inherent speed. Those are more um, maybe appropriate for a, a short run. But he's saying with endurance, just finish the race and finish in the way that does not disqualify you, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, an athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules, 1 Corinthians 9, 27. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, uh, I myself should be disqualified. We ought to look to runners who have completed the race before us. Look to those who have gone before you. Think of men and women who've gone before you, who've completed the race with faithfulness. And we ought to look at their lives and, and emulate them in some ways. Look, and, and look at verse one again. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also, like what, how they've done it, let us, let us also do it, he himself included. Don't look for the gifted, famous, or perfect, rather, Look to the lives of those who have simply finished the race and emulate them. How are we to emulate them? There are two ways. He said, let us also lay aside every weight and lay aside sin which closely uh, clings so closely to us. 
Laying aside sin, that's obvious, that uh, to finish the race well, we ought not let sin become, uh, become so intertwined with our lives that, uh, that we deal with sin through repentance. By the way, the Christian life begins with repentance and continues with repentance. Salvation starts with repentance. Sanctification continues with repentance. So if you're looking for spiritual heroes, by the way, don't look for those who are gifted or successful, but look to those who are good at repentance. Repentance. Lay aside sin, but also he says, lay aside those things which, uh, every weight which clings to them. So when he talks about sin and every weight, um, so, you know, when he talks about two different categories of things, he, he must mean that sin is sin, universally, morally wrong, but also he's talking about every way other morally neutral things that hinder us from running the race and finishing it well. Um, a distance runner or any athlete, and I know we have a lot of athletes at our church, there's a difference between when you train and when you run the race, right? Uh, there's, there, there's a difference between when you are practicing and when you are competing. A distance runner or, uh, will practice in such a way, but when it comes race time, you take off your sweats, sweatpants, you, you put on your, not your training shoe, but your lighter uh, racing shoe. You take off the, the AirPod and whatever your, your handphone so that you may best uh, able to compete and finish the race. You know, there's, um, there's a reason why marathon runners don't post selfies during the race. There's nothing wrong with it before and afterwards, but not during the race. They lay aside every encumbrance that hinders them. Look for those who are good at repentance. Look for those who lay aside uh, those things which hinder them. Look for those, uh, not those who are gifted and, and successful at the moment, but look for those who are faithful to the end. Look for those who finish even with a limp, but they finish well. You know, I um, so appreciated Pastor Corey Ishida last week. And like I said, he's one of my spiritual mentors. He's in his 70s. Um, and, I, you know, he's one of the more gifted, sought-after uh, leaders. But he, in his humility, simply loved his church and simply sought to be faithful as much as possible. And, and he literally came up last Sunday limping on stage, if you recall. And that's the kind of man, that's the kind of woman whom we want to look to. There's a second thing that the author tells us to look to, not only the, the lives of the faithful, but the suffering of Jesus. Verse 2. Um, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. He is uh, the archegos, which means that he is not only the first, 
but the, the cause of faith. And he's the teleotos, uh, which means he is the completer, the, the perfect. And Revelation 22, 13 says, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. When we're uh, thinking about what it uh, takes to have faith, what it looks like, that look at Jesus. He's not only the ultimate example, but he's the one who created faith. He's the one who made faith possible. He's the one who is the object of faith. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10 says, For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect, listen carefully, through suffering. He's the beginning and end by suffering. He is the, the founder and perfecter of our faith through his suffering. Verses 2 and 3 now again. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faith-hearted. If you're, if you're tempted to quit, look to Jesus. If you feel like people are treating you unfairly, look to Jesus. If you feel like I'm not good enough, look to Jesus. Because the genesis of our faith is not how good we were. The genesis of our faith was even though we were hostile toward Christ, although we brought shame to Christ, although we helped put Jesus on the cross, that his suffering allowed grace our forgiveness, look to Jesus. First Peter chapter two, verse 21, four, to this you have been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not return, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And though we are tempted at times to think, I was treated unfairly. These people in my lives, they're bringing me so much pain and agony. How can they do this to me? Verse 4 reminds you and me, as we look upon Jesus in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Look, your suffering is nothing compared to the suffering of Jesus. And the difference is that he was perfect, he did not deserve any of his suffering, but you do look to him. There's a third thing and, uh, that, we, that the author tries to get us to look to, and I believe this is like the meat of this passage. So when we are tempted to quit, look to those who have gone before us, look to the, the author and perfecter of faith, and the third thing that we ought to look at is the discipline of the Father. Verse 11, verse 5, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? So he, he begins with a rhetorical question, have you forgotten? And so what he's trying to say is, you need to remember. You need to remember the exhortation that you are sons, you are daughters. 
and he quotes directly from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now, when we hear the word discipline, so at school, when someone is being disciplined, and, and so if the school calls you saying, hey, your son is in the assistant principal's office for discipline, uh, we conclude that the, uh, my son did something wrong, so he's in the assistant principal's office uh, to get punished or to talk to or something. So we think that discipline is a result of bad action. Okay, the word discipline here in its root um, um, uh, means a child or boy or youth, and the term means to train children to chasten or to correct. So this term discipline is a more broader word. It is not simply correcting someone who's gone wrong, but proactively training someone so that they would stay right. Does that make sense? A coach corrects when the athlete goes wrong, but a coach spends much of their time proactively training the athlete to race properly. This is the term. My son, do not regard lightly the training of the Lord or the discipline of the Lord. And he talks about two ways in which oftentimes when we experience the training of the Lord, the discipline of the Lord, we reject it. Two ways in which we reject it. He says, um, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. One of the ways in which when we experience suffering in our lives, when we experience pain in our lives, one of the ways we reject it is to make light of it. We say, well, the world is just a chaotic place full, filled with uh, suffering, and this is just one random suffering, and I'm just going to deal with it. I'm just going to not care. It has no meaning. Life is just miserable. That's just how it is. It is an, um, a stoic, cynical approach to suffering in which God is irrelevant. That's how a lot of people just cope with the pain in their lives. The second way in which people deal with suffering or discipline of the Lord is, nor be weary when reproved by Him. When we um, experience suffering, we think that God is in control, God is sovereign, He knows everything that's going on, and if He allowed it, or if He proactively brought it into my life, a loving God uh, wouldn't allow pain in my life. So our conclusion is, God must be cruel. The way that we, people oftentimes deal with pain in their lives is to be cynical and be indifferent to God, or, um, or, or, or to be stoic and be indifferent to God, or to be cynical and claim that God is cruel. Both ways leave us with despair and wanting to just quit. And the author says, don't do that. 
don't forget the exhortation that when these things happen, it's happening because you are a child of God. He, he continues and says that there are probably two big reasons why God is allowing suffering in our lives. In verse 7, it says, it is for discipline that you have to endure with. When, when life gets hard, when, when in the midst of a race, when you want to quit, when in the midst of a race, you've experienced hostility and, and people um, opposing you and deeply hurting you. I want you to understand that it is discipline. God's allowing you to experience those things because he's trying to train you. Two reasons. And I'm going to um, go to the second one first. First of all, um, secondly, uh, the reason why God allows discipline is for our good. God allows discipline for our good. Verse 9, and for, for sorry, um, AV people, I'm, I just changed this around. Verse 9, besides this, we have, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them, he says, he, he connects the discipline that we know, the training that we know to the, that which we received from our earthly parent. And though imperfect, and though sometimes it is selfish, inconsistent, and unjust, we generally understand that it is the parent's job to train their children, and, if you, and I want you to think about it. Remember, I started with training, right? Not discipline. When you teach a child um, to walk, when you teach a child, when you teach a child to, to hold on to a fork and, and feed themselves, when you try to teach a child to ride a bicycle, that's all part of training. And a parent uh, does so, and we respect them for it, even though it is imperfect. But let's look at verses 9 through 11. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they, earthly parents, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. And so the, the author is kind of uh, admitting that earthly parents sometimes screw up. And, and, and by the way, I, I know that when we talk about Father's discipline, that for some people, the thing that comes to their mind is an abusive parent. And, and there's no way in your mind and heart and emotion and memory you connect that, that, what, that what that parent did and love. It is, no, that wasn't love. Um, parental abuse, it's sin. It's a result of sin. But something inside us tells us it shouldn't be like that. Something in her, inside of us tells us, no, no, a parent shouldn't be like that. Rather, they should be doing it for our good. And so that's why it messes us up when they don't. And so this author says that uh, they disciplined us for a short while as it seemed best to them. So earthly parents, they're mostly trying from their perspective to... Uh, to do good for their kids. And verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems, listen carefully, painful, rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been 
trained by it. The author says, discipline at the present is painful. When we experience pain, not always, but some of the time, much of the time, many of the time, it is because God is allowing it, proactively giving it to us, and it is painful, it hurts. For, so that we may share in His holiness, so that it may yield the peaceful fruit of righteousness, the goal of discipline that God gives us is holiness and righteousness. And at the moment when he's training us, it's, it hurts, it's hard, it's painful. Deuteronomy 8.5 says, Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. You need to know in your heart, not in your head, that when, when sometimes God allows pain, it's because he's trying to train you. He's trying to, uh, add, he's trying to mold your values and your character. You know, I, uh, I went to Arcadia High School, Apaches, some of you know. Um, and um, I, you know, my sport was cross country and track. Um, I'm not gifted with athletic abilities. My superior athletic ability is my uh, ability to withstand pain. That's my athletic ability. And so I can run uh, even though it, it really hurts. Um, my coach was Doug Speck. I didn't realize this, but it was later until I, I realized that Doug Speck it was kind of, became kind of a renowned coach. Uh, he and another coach spearheaded the Arcadia Invitational, which became uh, one of the premier uh, track and field events um, in the country, actually. When I was doing cross country or, um, or track, in fact, uh, we would practice every day, sometimes in the morning and sometimes in the afternoon or most of the times in the afternoon. And we always began with stretching, all sorts of stretching, meticulous, mundane, uh, repetitive. Um, I, I would stretch muscles in my body that I haven't stretched since then. Uh, we would do weights. We would uh, take, uh, these heavy things and just lifted with different parts of our body repetitively and I wouldn't get paid for doing that. Um, when we go out to run, we would uh, have different emphases, different days. Sometimes we try to go as far as we can from the school and come back and the other times we would try to go fast as we can and uh, short sprints. Uh, there are other times we uh, uh, did these kind of trainings where we uh, uh, used like the person in front of us to, to break our wind and, and follow them. But there's this one particular training that just all of us dreaded. And if you went to Arcadia, you know that we're right at the foot of the, uh, the mountains, Mount Wilson, and uh, that's where you go up uh, on Santa Anita. If you go straight up, you, you would hit um, uh, the Griffith Park Observatory and, and no, no. You go up and you hit my, Mount Wilson. And, and so he would take us to the foot of uh, that big uh, road with a steep incline and we get in the median grass, um, uh, grass median. And this is the exercise. This is the training. We would run up as fast as we can to a certain point and then we jog back and we would run as fast as we can up again, jog back, so forth. And it was our worst training regimen. We, we 
absolutely dreaded it when he told us. Um, he would tell us, okay, well, this is what we're gonna do. Like, oh my gosh. And um, I'm, I'm not kidding when I say that, that the different athletes would just gag and throw up at the bottom of the hill because that's what we, it was just a difficult training. Now, if, if I did not understand that Doug Speck, Mr. Speck was our coach and I was simply a student and there's this adult authority figure making me stretch, making me lift, uh, lift heavy things without compensating me, um, uh, making me run to places that's far without, without the use of Uber, um, making me go up and down the hill uh, to the point where I wanna throw up, I would say that's abusive. But if I reposition, reframe it and say, no, the pain that I'm experiencing is because of good. He's trying to train me. That's, discipline is for good. There's another purpose for discipline. Another reason why it's so important for us to understand and frame what's happening as discipline. Discipline is not only for good, but discipline is proof of the love of the parent. Look at verses seven and eight. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. He says, discipline, when, when God allows suffering in your life, it is not chaos, but rather it is proof that you are a child of God. A, a, an adult does not discipline random kids. An adult disciplines, trains, go out of their way to discipline their own kid. As painful as it is, that's the mark of a loving father. When I was in Korea, uh, it was in, an intern at a church, and one of the things I did was I used to go to an orphanage in which the church volunteers at. And, um, you know, I love kids, and so I, I thought this would be great. I would go um, play with the kids, and they would love me because I love kids. And one of the first times that I went, and uh, I was trying to play with some boys, and, and one of the little boys um, took my wallet and ran away. I thought he was playing. I chased after him, but he kept running away. And then after a little while, he would come back. And I said, okay, thank you. And then he would run away again. And I, I, I got annoyed, frustrated, a little bit upset. And um, I eventually had to ask one of the staff members, hey, that boy still has my wallet. What's wrong? Um, you know, how can I get my wallet back? And the staff member said, oh, don't worry. By the time you're ready to go, he'll give it back to you. And the reason he took it is because he wanted your attention. He thought that if you had your wallet, you would keep giving him your attention. And I realize that for someone who does not have a father, someone who does not have a mother, what they crave the most is attention. Someone to say that you matter to me. And I say this, I, I've said this before and I'll say it again, but the opposite of love is not abuse, although abuse is a, a twisting, a sinful a way to express a relationship, but the opposite of love is indifference. 
And when your heavenly Father allows discipline in your life, it is because he loves you and he's trying to mold your values and character. Now, let me finish off with the warnings of a weary runner and I'll, I'll be quick, verses 12 through 17. Lifting up your droop, drooping, uh, drooping hands and strengthening your weak knees and make straight paths through your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. What are two markers that you are on the verge of quitting your spiritual walk? What are the, the markers that perhaps that you are not gonna finish well, two things. Number one is the root of bitterness. Root of bitterness. Verses 14 and 15, strive for peace with everyone and for holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. Uh, people will sin against you. People will hurt you. People will act unjustly towards you. You're not just imagining it, it is true. But will you react, respond with the grace of God, the grace that you have received or not? If not, you will not only become bitter, and if it becomes a habit, that bitterness will take root in your life. And when bitterness has taken root in your life, and this is this idea that these people have sinned against me and I refuse to forgive them. I cannot forgive them because I'm not operating out of the grace of God. It takes root. And if you've ever tried to um, uh, do any kind of gardening and there are some vegetations in which you, you can cut off the head, but if the root remains, it'll still come up. The second thing, uh, the second markers of potentially a a life that is on the verge, spiritual life on the verge of quitting is a normative immorality. Normative immorality, verses 16 and 17. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterwards when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected for he found no chance to repent. Though he sought it with tears. We know Esau, he, he's the one who sold his birthright. He also, though what we, he, we sometimes forget is that he wasn't just an immoral person. He, well, you know, have, have had at least three wives. Two of them gave his parents nightmares. He not only disregarded the promises of God, but I thought that he can live whatever way he wanted. Sin had become normative for him. Sin wasn't simply that, well, something that he was wrestling with, but it became normal for him that it's okay, I am justified in singing. I'm gonna ask the band to come up at this time. At the end of a long life, Paul the Apostle, the one who wrote much of the New Testament, but also one who walked with a limp on so many different uh, ways, we think that his life was glamorous, but no, he, he, some of his best friends abandoned him, accused him. He had a, a moments of colossal failure. And when he wrote 2 Timothy, the last New Testament book that we know of that he wrote, he pens this letter from a dark jail cell to a young Pastor Timothy, and he says in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He does not say I have finished faster than other people. I have shown more brightly than other people. 
that I was perfect in all respect, but I simply finished the race. That is the Hebrews' admonishment, encouragement to us. When you're running a marathon, just finish. Finish well. Keep the faith no matter what happens, no matter how hard. Hold on to Jesus. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we thank you for your grace once again. That during those moments when we want to quit, that you remind us to look to you, the author and finisher of our faith. We thank you for that reminder once again.